You're listening to the Mutual Audio Network. Sally, I heard you got your very own post-apocalyptic Barble doll. Hi, Tiffy. I sure did. And look, here come Barble's boyfriend, Living Dead Kenny, and her little sister, Zombie Skipler. Grrr. So awesome, Sally. With our own post-apocalyptic Barble playset and all these accessories, I know we'll be ready when the last days come. Well, I sure hope they come in our lifetime, Tiffy. <laughs> Post-Apocalyptic Barble comes with Zombie Hunter wardrobe and weaponry. Post-Apocalyptic Barble playset sold separately and comes with three zombie action figures. Living Dead Kenny and Zombie Skipler sold separately. Batteries not included. Now available from Has Been Toys. Are you ready for Tuesday, Terror? You'd better be. Because it starts right now. First up, Vampires of Whitechapel, Episode 3, the Taking of Ariana Grayson, Part 1. The chase for the serial killer known as Alistair the Annihilator intensifies, but as the net closes, Ariana finds herself in the company of Evil. Evil! Evil! Followed by Lights. A young naval officer claims at his court-martial that it was necessary to disobey his commanding officer in order to save his ship. But nobody else saw the signal that he claims to have seen. Did you see it? I didn't see nothing. Hmm. Blood Noir 3 wraps up our trilogy of terror, Weep and Moan. A mysterious and dangerous record by Memphis Minnie and Kansas Joe invites a terrible evil into a collector's life. How far would you go to complete your collection? Originally broadcast on the Curiosity Peddler, Weep and Moan was produced in the studio of WDRT, Veroca, Wisconsin, 91.9 FM. First broadcast on October 25th, 2015. I suppose you could say that's terror at 78 revolutions per minute. On the Mutual Audio Network, listen and imagine together, because you won't want to listen for low. <laughs> the following audio drama is rated restricted for anyone listening under the age of 17. This is the Transmissions from Atlantis Entertainment Network. Expand your wonder. Hey there, folks. JC Delatore here, creator of Vampires of Whitechapel. And we just wanted to say thank you for your support of the show. Response has been great, and we're really encouraged. Please continue to share the show with your friends and family, and please remember to rate and review the show in your favorite podcast app. It's so vitally important to our success as it helps others find us. Also, we have a drive to get 500 patrons on Patreon before year's end. If we can get there, we can guarantee Season 2 of Vampires of Whitechapel. It only costs $1 monthly, and it gets you access to a ton of cool perks, including exclusive Patreon-only episodes, AMAs, interviews with creators and your favorite actors, and more. To join our Patreon, go to patreon.com slash TFA Entertainment. Finally, Midnight Syndicate has graciously allowed us to use their music for this audio drama. All the music used can be found and purchased at their site at MidnightSyndicate.com. That's it for me. Let's see what scary thrills we have in store this week.
Transmissions from Atlantis Entertainment presents The Vampires of Whitechapel Episode 3 The Taking of Ariana Grayson Part 1 Written by J.C. Delatore. Note, this show contains dramatic scenes of horror and descriptions of violence or gore that may be unsettling to young listeners. Parental discretion is strongly advised. So, how did Ariana Grayson, special agent in the FBI, become a monster? I was on a case. One of those career-making cases, tracking the most active serial killer in the United States. I want to tell you first about the letter. For to understand what I became, you have to understand who he is. Alistair the Annihilator, the serial killer who is much more than that. First, I'll tell you what I am not. I am not a vampire that glitters in the sun. I don't fall in love with human beings. Nor have I any ties to my mortal coil. I left that long ago. The year was 1888. I was working for George Lusk and the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee in London. Our goal was to capture the fiend who was known most as Jack the Ripper. You dare follow me. I am the one you call the Ripper. And now you've seen me for what I am. It is time for you to make a choice. What? What choice? Life or death. Life? Life? I gingerly exited the corner and walked toward the mirror in the hallway, careful to step over the corpse of Molly Chambers. What I viewed in the mirror was hideous. It was no longer Jack that possessed the shark-like teeth, but me. I had the knives on my fingertips. I became what I was hunting. I was the monster. I was the Ripper. There was more, much more in the letter. But for now, I think I should take you back to the beginning of our hunt for the serial killer known as Alistair the Annihilator. As I walked into the meeting room for SKTF at FBI headquarters, my senses were assaulted by hundreds of pictures of brutally mutilated bodies. Fourteen murders in total, all people of different sexes, races, and religious beliefs posted onto a large whiteboard. There were young preppy college kids and old vagrants. There were hetero and homosexuals. Each murder was extremely violent in nature. But the manner of death seemed to change. All the victims had their insides torn out by sharp objects, and in all of the cases, the organs were gnawed on by some strange animal that we simply couldn't identify. Even stranger, the DNA recovered from the scenes that didn't belong to the victim was identical, but had the most unusual characteristics. It was definitely human, but with something different. Aside from the mutilations and weird DNA, there wasn't much stringing the cases together. They were all from different parts of the country. The closest thing you could find to a pattern was that they always seemed to occur at night. Still, it didn't matter which night of the week or the cycle of the moon, each victim seemed to be chosen randomly. As I scanned through the evidence on the board, I noticed something peculiar with each. There were strands of fabric, the same fabric, 
near or on the bodies in each instance. Good to see you here early, Agent Grayson. I looked at my Apple Watch. Sure enough, it was 6 a.m. I had been there two hours already. Take your seat if you would. I believe you both know Agent Ariana Grayson. After her exemplary work on the Stabber case, I've extended an offer for her to join our team, which she's accepted. I was quite fine with the mocking golf clap. If it was their way of rookie hazing, good for them. As long as I was there, working this case, I didn't care. Grayson is here to show us how to do our jobs, Larissa. Finally. Your mentoring has been crap so far. Why, you... Okay, okay, settle down. Okay, so moving on. This case, 306HQ234568. We're going to call the Annihilator case since we've allegedly received a letter from our perp. What? Yeah, last night. What does it say? Here you go. Nasso handed a one-page copy to each of us, and I quickly scanned through the handwritten letter. Dear boss, if you're wondering, yes, the murders of Alston Morris and Maria Toconado are related. I did them among others. To prove to you I am who I claim to be, here is a piece of Tokonado's lower intestine. Test it with your DNA techniques. I assure you, it belongs to her. I want you to stop me and my spree, but I know you can't. So I urge you to stop your investigation. You'll spend your entire life pursuing me to no end. I will never be subject to your justice. Yours eternally, Alistair, the Annihilator. All the script was written in block lettering, with heavy, angry strokes. Smudges of ink were in several spots on the paper. Before end my spree were the words stop me, angrily crossed out as if he was perturbed by his choice of words. He seems to be a bit of a perfectionist. How so? Well... The way Stop Me was stricken through seemed to suggest the author was very upset with his mistake, as it was aggressively crossed out. Assuming Alistair is a male. Of course. We can't assume that until we have more evidence to suggest it. But it's obvious the killer identifies himself as the male gender, at least in his kill rage. His what? Many serial killers aren't hauled up in a cabin in the mountains. The majority are functional members of society. For those to be able to provide that face, they have to keep their homicidal tendencies under wraps. Their kill rage, if you will, isn't always there. So, at the very least, the killer identifies himself as a male during this period. Get a load of this chick, Ambrose. First day on the job and she's trying to tell me stuff I already know? Settle down, Contello. Ariana is your first day, not ours. I'm sorry. Don't be, Agent Grayson. You're absolutely correct. But... I don't think we can rule out anything at this point, including the nut job up in the mountains. Yes, sir. Cantello shot Ambrose a she-already-made-a-rookie-mistake smirk that made me feel a bit uneasy. My attempt to impress my new partners had slightly backfired on me. I needed to redeem myself. I glanced towards the board and took notice of the fiber that seemed the only link to tying the crimes together. Those fibers... Has it been determined what age they are? It seems they're some form of tweed, like from a suit. However, the thread count and makeup is a bit unusual. It's not the typical tweed suit you can pick up at the men's warehouse. You know, I have some Facebook friends who make suits back in Scotland. I wonder if they could help me place it. Great. Work that. 
Ambrose, focus on the latest crime scene. Use those perception skills of yours to see what we haven't seen in Cantello. <sighs> I know. Work with the squints and see if there's anything else we can find. Through my friends on Facebook, I discovered that the tweed was indeed rare, called Inverary, a priceless fabric. It was thought lost until a man bought a jacket and matching waistcoat on eBay. We cleared the man of any involvement. A new version of the Inverary tweed was developed and in production. But the one found in the crime scene was not the 21st century version. These threads had been around for nearly 200 years. I spoke with Lorna Morrison, a dressmaker in Inverary, Scotland. Yes, I do know of one man who works with original Inverary. It's very strange. He has a customer who ships him the material and asks for suits to be made from it. As far as I know, it's his only customer. The man, Duca McCrailed, was a nondescript Scottish-born suit maker living in Elgin, Moray, Scotland. There was no way of contacting him directly, as he didn't have a phone and no form of electronic presence. He was lost to the world. After grabbing a flight to Scotland, I took the Inverness to Aberdeen train line that stopped at Elgin Station. Elgin was a beautiful little burg, with a scenic hilly countryside and impressive stone buildings. The entire town seemed to have the classic Scottish feel to it. The Lady Hill and Duke of Gordon monument seemed to tower over the little hamlet, as well as the simply gorgeous Elgin Cathedral, exploding into the blue skies like a castle. Even with the quaintness of the burg, it still had a slightly modern feel to it. McCrailed lived outside the town, in a tidy cottage off of Calcutt's Road. As I approached the door, I couldn't help but imagine the Wolf of Badenoch terrorizing the countryside in the 1390s. This cottage looked like a remnant of Elgin's fiery past. My name is Ariana Grayson. Grayson? I don't know any Grayson. Except for Logan Grayson. <laughs> Bastard owes me two rhino. Two rhinos? Yes, 200 quid. Pounds! What's the matter with you? Sorry, I'm from America. <laughs> the colonies, eh? Figures. I was wondering why you'd be talking so funny. <laughs> what do you want with an old man, be pretty? I'm investigating a murder. His eyes grew wide. A flicker of knowledge seemed to pass quickly. I don't know nothing about nothing. He tried to close the heavy wooden door. I stuck my foot in between it and its jam, feeling an instant shot of pain when it slammed on it. Ow! My foot! What are you doing? Get your fool foot out of me, crevice! Please, I've come a long way to see you. I identified a connection between you and this killer. My conscience is clear, lassie. I ain't hand a hair on a hair. If you don't speak with me, 
Others will die by his hand, and you'll have to go to God with that on your head. I ain't meeting my maker anytime soon, lassie. But I assume you'll be out there banging on heaven on high until I speak to you. Indeed I will, Mr. McCrailed. See, we already know each other well. Come on, then. The interior cottage looked like it was stuck in a time warp. The only modern machinery was a sewing machine that appears to be made in the early 1900s. The old man had little hair on his wrinkly head. He was closer to his maker than he believed, almost as old as the sewing machine itself. So, what have it done? Your name has come up during our investigation in relation to a rare tweed. The killer appears to be wearing this tweed during his attack on his victims. I told you, I don't know nothing about all that. Do you know about Inverary tweed? Oh, aye. Get anywhere now. Mass produced by robots and computing machines. Not this one. Last manufacture was over 130 years ago. I told you, I don't know nothing about that. I've been told the opposite. I've been informed you've been making suits for a certain customer with Inverary tweed. Pack of lies! Come on, Mr. McCrailed. Do you think I would be here if we didn't have hard evidence that you were involved? DNA and hair fibers matching you to the creation of the suit. I was bluffing. There was nothing but the word of Lorna Morrison that McCrailed was the man I needed to see. It was all I had to go on. And I prayed he believed me. DNA? What in the blazes are you on about? We know you made the suit, sir. We have the scientific proof. Now give me his name, or I can extradite you to the United States as an accessory to the murder and obstruction of justice. Do you really want to spend your remaining years in a U.S. prison protecting a murderer? Missy, if I give you the name that you want, if I provide that to you, then I am sentencing myself to death. Don't you understand? He allows me to live as long as I serve him. He's a devil, young lass. I made me a bargain with him. And if I back out of it, I'll be underground in short order. Help me catch him, Mr. McCrailed. Stop his reign of terror and you won't have to fear him anymore. How old do I look to you? I'd say late 70s. I'm 150 years old. I've seen my children die. I don't see my grandchildren or great-grandbabies because they think I'm not natural. And me, am I? That's impossible. No one lives to be 150. He was once a very close friend of mine. A long time ago. He simply loved him very tweed. He would come to me in my shop all the time for a new suit. For a time, I looked forward to his visits. He was always the kindest of gents. It'd be more than the suits were worth. As the years continued, I noticed that while I grew older, he never changed. He kept that same youthful look about him. I asked him what his secret was, but he just smiled. I had taken ill, deathly ill, and it looked like my water horse was coming for me. And out of the blue, he shows up. Here, my friend, drink this. He had this elixir, this... Oh, terrible tasting concoction was so salty I nearly gagged it out. I took the medicine. In a few hours I felt the best I had in me life. 
Externally, I was the geezer I'd been, but internally, I felt like I had been in my twenties. This sickness was gone, and it went on, year after year. Usually around Christmas time, he would return with a new vial of that oh, monstrous remedy. All he ever asked was to provide me talents as a tailor for this special tweed. When was the last time you saw him? Christmas past. Give me his name, Mr. McCrailed. I cannot do that, mistress. Haven't you not been listening? One Christmas I refused to take as a lecture. I'd lived enough. More living than most folks in the world get. I told him I don't want his concoction no more. That's when he showed me, my dear. Showed you what? His true face. That of the devil himself. You're telling me that this man is the devil. Aye, that he is. And it's my pact with him that will send me to Dante's levels. So you see, child, I nae want to anger him. See that face again. Nay, do I want to meet St. Peter for that judgment. I cannot tell you his Can name. Can you give me anything, anything that could help me? Go for a pretty one, you are a bit thick. You cannot stop the devil. Give me lesson. something, damn it. People are dying. Fine. If it'll get you off my doorstep and about your business. His most recent order was sent to his address in the Americas. If you hurry back, you just may be able to beat it there. His decrepit hand scribbled an address on a sheet of paper. When I reached Elgin, I phoned to the FBI travel that I would be headed out to the first flight to Chicago. A couple days later, we staked out a post office in downtown Chicago, owned by an Alvin Morrissey. I was with Ambrose while Cantello watched his home. Morrissey was a strange character. There was a birth certificate filed with the city that would make him out to be 35 years old. He owned property throughout the country, including areas where murders had occurred. He traveled and seemed to have an abundance of money left to him by his father Arnold Conacher, a former police homicide detective. It is unknown why Morrissey changed his surname. Interestingly, his grandfather Alistair had come from England in the early 1900s. Perhaps it was the grandfather the old Scott knew of. Not much was known about Alistair's movements during that time, but at some point he seemed to settle in Chicago and began working for the police department. Eventually, he would transfer to different departments across the nation, and everywhere he went, brutal, macabre murders would pop up. Could we have stumbled upon a family of serial killers, secretly manipulating crime scenes to escape their pursuers? Sure enough, Alvin too had worked for a homicide department in Trenton, New Jersey, before returning to Chicago. The first of the Annihilator murders had occurred in Trenton, Susie Benton. Murders began popping up throughout Long Island and New Jersey during Morrissey's time there, only to subside when he left. 
Everywhere he went, murders we now attributed to the Annihilator seemed to occur. We were certain we had the right guy. Now we just needed him to show himself. It was early morning when I woke Ambrose from his sleep. The post office wasn't open, but a man in a tweed suit had suddenly appeared at the front door. He had a key to the place, like he was an employee. Looking both ways, he entered. Units two and three, we have a suspect that has entered the post office. We waited for an agonizing minute as the other FBI agents stealthily moved into place. Let's go. We moved down the sidewalk briskly, trying not to be in view of the post office's glass door. We slinked our way across the street and were near the doors when the man emerged, package underneath his armpit. His tweed jacket was a mixture of light and dark brown. He had short, cropped light brown hair parted in the middle and a bushy brown mustache on his nondescript nose. His thin cheekbones seemed to be drained of blood. He was white as a ghost. Alvin Morrissey! Which one of you was it? Morrissey! Put your hands where I can see them! Certainly not you. He sneered at Carl, then turned his gaze to me, smiling. His eyes met mine, and I felt a cold chill tear down my spine. What the? Where is he? I lost him! I've got him! Grayson, wait! I saw a shadow heading down the side street and tore after him. I was running as fast as I could, pumping my legs like a turbine. Throughout high school and college, I was a member of the track team. There hadn't been a perp alive who could outrun me. I stopped at the side street, took a quick glance. Dark, no lights from the street lamps, and it was a new moon. Pitch black. I used my iPhone flashlight to illuminate the pathway directly in front of me and glanced down to see the darkest blood I had ever seen. It didn't look human. Still, I had a feeling it was from our suspect. I eased my way into the alleyway. Give up, Morrissey! There's no way out of here now! What is your name? The voice came directly from behind me. I spun, shone my light. But there was nothing. It's over. Show yourself and we- Grayson! Grayson! Ariana! Thank you for listening to Vampires of Whitechapel. If you like our show, subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or any of the podcast apps that podcasts are aired. Be sure to rate our show. If you'd like to listen to commercial-free versions of this podcast and ensure the next season of Vampires of Whitechapel, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash TFA Entertainment. We will have exclusive Vampires of Whitechapel content, including Patreon-only episodes, early access to these episodes, and behind-the-scenes interviews with actors and creators, all just for you. Join us in two weeks for the next spine-tingling chapter of Vampires of Whitechapel. Alistair Conisher and Dougal McCrailed were played by Alexander Dottie. Ariana Grayson and Lorna Morrison 
were played by Cat Noel. Carl Ambrose was played by Eric Holloway. Larissa Cantello was played by Rita De La Torre. Gio Nassos was played by Jerry Kokich. This episode was written, produced, and directed by J.C. De La Torre. Music for this episode was provided by Midnight Syndicate. Find more of their music at midnightsyndicate.com. You can find out the latest news and developments regarding this audio drama at vampiresofwhitechapel.transmissionsfromatlantis.com and our Facebook page. Be sure to follow the vamps on Twitter at Ariana Grayson, at Alistair the Vamp, and at Jack the Ripper WC. But be warned, if you at them, they just may at you back. This has been a production of Transmissions from Atlantis Entertainment.